Let's turn to Judges chapter 11. Just in case you wonder, uh, the Lilly Endowment Foundation saw fit to give this church some $38,000. Now, who would be foolish enough to do that? <laughs> just, just, so, just so that the minister can go on a sabbatical. But yet that is what they do. Uh, that is part of what they do, and that foundation was set up to do so. They give away some $6 million every year um, to pastors around the country who fit their parameters, who fill out the form successfully, and uh, whose church support them in that effort. So Judges chapter 11. Uh, stand if you're able, and I'll read from verses 29 through 40. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your gifts and your care and, and the, the challenge that is placed before us, uh, that when we open our mouths, the truth needs to come out, and we need to be mindful of what comes out and what we say and what we promise and live up to the promises that we make. Simply say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So open our eyes to your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Judges chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as abel Keramim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, now realize between 35 and 36, there's no explanation. There's only, I've given my word to the Lord. So she said to him, My father... You have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And she said to her father, Let these things be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity and my, I and my companions. Then she, he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it came about at the end of two months that she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah in Gilead, the Gileadite four days in the year. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. 
This is probably one of the better known troubling passages in Scripture, Jephthah's daughter. Um, and, and, and as you know, as we go through these passages, we're, we're trying to understand them in the context of the passage, but yet also, well, how do we understand them in our lives? How is it that we can read about Jephthah's daughter and Jephthah's vow and then apply that in our lives today? Now, there are two schools of thought on Jephthah and his vow, um, and, and I'll give them to you, and then I'll tell you why I, I come down on one side versus the other. Um, the first view is that Jephthah says, I'm going to offer whatever comes out of my house as a burnt offering. His daughter comes out. He goes, oh, boy. Um, sends her off for a, a while to mourn, and comes back, place her, places her on the, altar, on the altar, sacrifices her, burns her up. That's one view. And, and the straightforward reading of the passage as it is translated could, could certainly give you that, that understanding. Uh, the other understanding of this passage is that he sends her off uh, into isolation or what we would say basically he sends her to a convent for the rest of her life uh, after this, dedicating her to the Lord in that sense. Uh, I come down on that side, and I don't come down on that side because I'm the father of three daughters, although there are days. <laughs> you know, there have been some days where I wanted to get the altar out and get the fire going. Um, but I think uh, it, is, it is not too hard to justify the second view through Scripture, through the language, and through the context, and systematically throughout the entire word as we look at it. And it really falls down, uh, the division in understanding falls down mostly in age. The commentaries that are written basically before 1900 all come down the first side, and those written after 1900 come down the second side. And uh, I think perhaps... Uh, uh, scholarship and some discoveries uh, have, have led us to understand more of the isolation and devotion to the Lord for the rest of her life. So let me give you the context of what we're dealing with here. Now, as in Judges, which is the norm in Judges, the people follow the Lord, things go good. And they look over at the Ammonites or the Moabites or the Canaanites or the otherites, and they go, you know, they're having a lot of fun over there. Maybe we should try that religion for a while because we haven't heard from God for a while. So they end up going over there. And as they go over there, their, their life goes down, and those people come and uh, have dominion over them, and things get so bad that they cry out to the Lord, and they, they uh, uh, repent, and they turn to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a judge and he delivers them from the oppression of these other people. People rejoice. Goes along well for a while, and then the next generation or two comes along and goes, you know, those people are having fun over there. I'm going to go try that, and the cycle continues. The cycle continues seven times through the book of Judges. You'd think that they would learn. I mean, if we were there, certainly we would learn, right? Right, right. So again and again, God raises up a particular leader to bring deliverance to his people from the problem they've gotten themselves into by not being faithful to the Lord. Well, Jephthah is one of these guys that the Lord uses, one of the judges that the Lord uses. Now, Jephthah is not 
the guy you would think that people would select. And now you can read Judges 11 and 12 on your own, uh, the entire chapter 11 uh, at, at, on your own later. But let me give you the, the short version of that. As I said, he wasn't the kind of man that we would pick, but he's the kind of man, obviously, that God is going to pick. Uh, Jephthah was the illegitimate son of a Gileadite, someone from Gilead, uh, and a prostitute. And his, the rest of his siblings, mostly his brothers, kicked him out of the house because he was illegitimate. He was only a half-brother and a half-brother to a prostitute, so that's just not really anything in their eyes. So they kick him out, and he is forced to go and live with other outcasts of his time who were uh, of, of a lineage such as he was. And he goes out to this land that's called Tob, and he lives there, and probably had a pretty rough life while he lived there. Yet... Over the years, he's, he garners a reputation as a leader. He garners a reputation as someone who is successful against his enemies uh, because the elders come and approach him and say, hey, can you come and fight for us? Can you come and lead our soldiers against the enemy? So uh, really, when we look at Jephthah, he's not the kind of guy that we would choose, but how often is that the, course, the case with God? Uh, Paul says he uses the foolish things to confuse the wise. He picks the people that he wants. He picks the people who are ready to do his will, not the people that we would think, you know, wow, they look good on TV and, and they've got all their hair and all their teeth. I think he'll be the leader. No, that's not the way that the Lord does it. The Lord picks the people whose hearts are ready for him to work in. So the elders of Gilead come to Jephthah, ask him to lead their armies against the, the Ammonites who are amassed to fight. I mean, the battle is coming one way or another. So, so they talk back and forth. And there's a little negotiation, and Jephthah says this, and the, and the elders go back. But eventually Jephthah agrees to do this. So the first thing he does is not go out and count the soldiers, but he sends some negotiators to the kings of the Ammonites to talk to them. Maybe we can do this without a battle. Maybe there doesn't have to be bloodshed. Um, and regretfully, the kings of the Ammonites go, no, no, we're going to battle because we've got lots of soldiers and you don't have many soldiers. Okay, so they look like this is a sure victory for them. So Jephthah, knowing that the odds are not in his favor, turns to the only place he can, and that is to the Lord. I mean, how many times in the Old Testament do we see leaders go to the Lord when the mighty array is, the mighty enemy is arrayed against them and the soldiers for Israel are few and they go to the Lord and the Lord says, hey, I've got this, okay? Uh, the prophet who stands on the wall and, and sees all the soldiers there and say, hey, don't, don't you see the angels? Don't you see the Lord is going to work and deliver us? So uh, in, in uh, look at... Uh, Verses uh, 30 and 31. So this is what he does. He goes to the Lord. And, and, and we don't really like deals with the Lord. Okay, hey Lord, if you get me out of this, you know, I'm going to go, you know, I'll start going to church if you get me out of this. That's not the way that the Lord works here. But Jephthah makes a vow. And do you remember the book? It came out well, 20 or 30 years ago. All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. That's a cool book, okay? It's like eight or ten things. They play well with others, share, things like that. This could be all I really need to know I learned in Sunday school, okay? In that little song, 
Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Because the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, mouth, eyes, ears, hands, feet, all those things. If you're just careful with these, if you just, what, engage your mind before opening your mouth, a lot of bad things wouldn't happen in our lives. How many times have you said something and, and reached out to get those words back into your mouth, and you know it's too late, right? Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never harm you. Oh, that's crazy talk. Coarse words hurt us. Words get us in trouble. They hurt the others. Um, you know, I think... Uh, Perhaps you, in your quiet moments, think of the, heart, the hurtful things that you've said in life to others, and you just wish, I wish I could take those back. I mean, they were said in a moment of, of, of emotion, a moment of passion, or in a careless moment, and, and, but you know those things have hit people, and they've stuck with people, and, and even if you've apologized for them, those words are typically still there, and, and uh, those are the things, so often those are the things that... That, that weigh on uh, as a burden on me that the things I've said usually usually just flip it almost you know oh it's no big thing or something well it was a really big thing to them you know and, and it, it affected you know affected them negatively so oh be careful little mouth what you say Jephthah says if thou will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now let's look at a couple of things that, that, that will help us understand why I believe that, that Jephthah does, does not offer his daughter up as a burnt offering, but offers up a burnt offering and dedicates his daughter to the Lord. Uh, number one, Jephthah is not a really a rash man. We've seen he's already thought about what the elders said. He has talked with them about it. He has negotiated with them. He sent messengers to the king of Ammon. He's, this, uh, he's a kind of a cautious man. He didn't just jump right to their request. He didn't jump to conclusions here. He talked with them, negotiated, jumped, didn't jump into war. So he hasn't shown himself to be a rash man so far in the narrative. Secondly, Jephthah was a man familiar with the scriptures, as we can see from, from these passages early in the chapter in particular. He brings scripture to bear on the circumstances. So surely he knew about the books of Leviticus, the book of Number, uh, Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 20, uh, 12, that made it pretty clear in pretty plain English right, for us. Okay, Human sacrifice is no good. You do not offer a human in sacrifice to the Lord, especially your own children. You never did that. The pagan nations around Israel did that. Israel never, ever did that. In fact, it says it's an abomination unto the Lord. And Judges 11 is set in the context of kind of a reformation. Good things are happening, okay? There's, there's people who are turning their hearts toward the Lord. It's a spiritual renewal time, not a time to set up child sacrifice. So third... When Jephthah made this vow, the Spirit of the Lord had already come upon him. Okay, the Spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah. So would the Spirit inspire him to do something that is clearly at odds with anything else that the Holy Spirit would do or the Spirit of God would do, especially as it is revealed to us in Scriptures? So it seems very difficult to believe that Israel would have followed a leader like Jephthah 
if he had been contrary to the rules and the laws that the Lord had given and the way that the Lord acts. Fourth, look at verse 31 in particular. There are two things to be considered here in this verse. And there are a lot of linguistic things and a lot of textual things that we're just not going to go into because you would glaze over and that would be the end of of your ability to hear anything. I'm just going to give you the short version of all this as far as the language is concerned. The word and can be translated or. It's one of those words that fits either way here. Um, Verse 31, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the house, uh, the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the from the sons of Amnon, um, it shall be the Lord's and or I will offer up a burnt offering. It can go either way. It just depends upon the context, depends upon how it is translated. Okay, so Jephthah was promising that if a person came out of the house, he would devote it, devote that person's life to the Lord in separation. If an animal came out of the house, he would devote it as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, the second word, burnt offering, is something here. Then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace. So he was counting on the Lord, obviously, to give him victory, return in peace. It shall be the Lord's and offered up as a burnt offering. The word burnt offering um, is, is one of those phrases that is sometimes used as a burnt offering. Kill it, place it on, light the fire, consume it all. The other way that is used is in the sense of total and complete devotion to. So the word that we translate here, burnt offering, could also mean a complete dedication of in all manner and form. Okay? Um, so whatever comes out of the house would be dedicated to the Lord. Now remember later we see that the daughters of Israel went up on a regular basis uh, to lament uh, Jephthah's daughter or to commemorate Jephthah's daughter. So there's, there's, again, that's another translation thing. Is it lament or is it commemorate? Well, if she's still alive, they're not lamenting. They're commemorating her obedience to the Lord and to her father. Okay. Uh, now, why are they commemorating her and her obedience? And it was a sacrifice for her and for her father that she would be dedicated in her entire life, the rest of her life, to the Lord. She goes to mourn her virginity. So what that means is that in this culture, if you did not have a child as a woman, especially a son, you you were not blessed by the Lord. And it's very clear throughout Scripture uh, that if you did not produce children, you were not blessed by the Lord. So being a, a virgin all her life was a quite a blow to her. And it was quite something that was, it's no small issue in that day for her. And it's no small issue for her father as well, because that's the end of his line. His one and only child. He doesn't have any sons. He doesn't have any other daughters. He has only one daughter. And if she is not going to produce any grandchildren, then that means he is out of the line of the Messiah. There is no chance that the Messiah who's coming to save Israel, Jesus Christ, as we understand, there's no chance he will be listed in that line as one of those people who was the Messiah was descendant from. So finally, Jephthah is not ever reprimanded for what he does. There's no word in Scripture that says, and Jephthah was a terrible man for doing this. 
You would think that if somebody sacrificed his daughter uh, who was supposed to be godly, you would, there would be some reprimand in Scripture. You would be saying, yeah, he did good up until this time. No, in fact, 1 Samuel chapter 12 names Jephthah as one of those men who kept Israel safe. And then if you go to the book of Hebrews, the great hall of faith, uh, in, in, in chapter 11, Jephthah is listed there. Uh, you wouldn't think that if he was a guy who was known for one victory and then sacrificing his daughter, that he would be listed as a great man of faith. So Jephthah stands as a man of faith. Jephthah's daughter stands out as, as a woman of faith. Dad, whatever you have vowed to the Lord, I'm in with you. Okay, I'm good with it. Even if it costs me my, you know, no children, no husband, none of those blessings. If you have made a vow to the Lord, I will be obedient. So you see this great, uh, uh, this woman of faith here, and um, they, uh, they go up, verse 36. So she said to him, my father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Amnon. So she goes off to mourn her virginity. And then the, verse 40, that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate. And we see that this was not one of those things that was to be done on and on and on into perpetuity. This was a commemoration as long as Jephthah's daughter was alive. That's the context. And that's the way that it is structured. As long as she was alive, the daughters would go and they would commemorate her obedience and her sacrifice before the Lord. So, I mean, what an impact that she had on an entire nation. Where all the young women would go and remember her obedience, remember her submissiveness to her father and to the Lord. It was a great example of, of what we would list contagious Christian living. She set an example, she lived by it, people saw it, and they followed it. Now, I know... Some of you are thinking, oh, okay, Ran. Last time I even thought about a burnt offering was that chicken on the barbecue last week. And I, you know, I really didn't, this is cool, this is good history, but what does this, how does this deal with me today? Because, you know, if, if, I, would, if I would look at my daughter and say, hey, I've made a vow to the Lord and you're going to a nunnery, <laughs> you know, none of my daughters would be up for that. I can tell you that, okay? I'd get that. <laughs> yeah, Dad. <laughs> But we make vows today, don't we? And, and our vows, they're really, uh, now, you, Scripture says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So when someone starts off a, a phrase, well, let me be honest with you. you know, and, and I try hard not to ever to say that because the assumption is what? I have not been honest in the past with you. <laughs> or let me be frank. Well, what have you been before? All right. Now, you, your yes is yes. Your no is no. If this is true, then, then I want to hear it. Now, I might like a little velvet on that truth brick, but I want the truth, okay? So we make vows, and, and I'm only going to look at two very briefly today, that we make one as believers and we make as men and women so often. I'll start with Charles Spurgeon, quote from him. I have opened my mouth unto the Lord. I've made a vow unto the Lord. He has moved in my heart, and I have made a public profession of faith. I have made a vow unto the Lord. We have confessed our faith in Jesus Christ. We have done this before others. We have done this in our own heart. We have done it 
to the Lord, that we believe that Jesus died for us and our salvation rests on him alone. Now, just in the last, I don't know how many years, when you joined this church, you had to go before the session and you were asked two questions, how you came to Central and how you came to Jesus Christ. It is a public profession of what the Lord did in your life. It is a public profession of how his grace has been active and how you understand salvation. We want your testimony. You know, we want it to be a great time of, of giving thanks to the Lord. So when you give your testimony, you are giving a public vow, a public profession of what the Lord has done in your life. It is a public testimony of the grace of God. Spurgeon goes on to say, We have also vowed and declared before the living God that we are Christ's disciples and followers. However short we have come of perfect obedience to his commands, yet his will is the rule of our lives. We call him master and Lord, and when we read about the disciples of Christ, we think of ourselves as belonging to them. He is our blessed master. How glad we are to own that. And that we are indeed his disciples. We are not ashamed to acknowledge that we have opened our mouths unto him. To believe all the teachings and to obey all the commands. We have opened our mouths unto Christ. Lord, I am yours. So if we were to say that in public. And then to turn around and go, well yeah, I'm his, but, but not right this moment. Because the offerings of the world are better. Or what I want is going to trump what God says and say, well, I know the Lord says this, but, but I really want this. So, Lord, I'm yours wholeheartedly except for this. We cannot go back on the vows that we have made. We cannot go back on our public profession of faith. For if the Lord has changed our hearts, if he has come and saved us, it is his work and we know it to be well. We know it to be well within our heart because he has done it. And to go back on that vow, if we profess to be believers and then go back, there are some very famous people who in, in time have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And we've seen them do ministry even. And then later in life they go, you know what, I think that was a mistake. I, I can remember being in college and I walked into somebody's dorm and they were listening to, uh, what's his face? Yeah, the times are a-changing or... Bob Dylan, thank you. I think uh, it's my Dylan imitation. Okay. And, and they said, yeah. I said, man, wouldn't it be cool if Dylan became a Christian? They said, yeah, he became a believer. And he actually put out a Christian album. And, then, and his, I think his faith lasted through one album. And then he pitched it out. Okay. So we know if he wasn't really saved. He made a profession. He made a, you know, opened his mouth, but his heart had not been changed. For if your heart is really changed, then the Lord has done the work. He has saved you. So we cannot go back on a vow such as that. If we have received the Holy Spirit and go back to a life that, that loves sin, if we have the Spirit lives within us and, and we go back to living the way we used to, then we're calling Christ a liar. And we're saying his grace is not sufficient for us. It is not sufficient to get us through whatever it is that we face. But if Christ has truly changed your life, you cannot say that. For you know you love the Lord and he loves you. This is Spurgeon again. You cannot go back because you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ and you will not turn your back upon him. 
Will you who have once tasted his wondrous love and seen him in glory and the throes of death desert Christ? No, he says. We cannot. It cannot be so. We cannot abandon our Lord. We have opened our mouths to the Lord and we cannot go back. A man does not turn his back upon the Lord. Grace will not let us return to our old bondage. When John Bunyan was in prison for preaching the gospel, he wrote, I will lie here till the moss grows on my eyelids, but I cannot, I cannot do other than God bids me. There's one other vow I want to hit today. Obviously our profession of faith in Christ. There's one other vow that we make, and many of us have made this. So let me give you some of that vow, and you'll know. We made that vow for better or worse, in richer or poorer, in sickness and health, as long as we both shall live. Now, some of those vows in people's lives have not held, some for, for valid reasons and some for selfish reasons. So we're not dealing with those, but the past cannot be changed. So we live with the vows that we have presently made. And we seek to fulfill them in all love and tenderness and all faithfulness in all that we possess. And we have to ask ourselves as part of the church, as those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, will the world look at our weakness, the weakness of our vows, and the weakness of what we say is right and wrong, especially our vows to our spouses, as justification for not keeping their vows? Will they look and go, well, you know, that guy, that guy Randy says that, that he loves the Lord, but, but man, he's, just, he's deserted his wife. My walk has to match my talk. When I make a vow, I may not like what I have said. I may not like some of the things that go on, but I have made a vow before the Lord. So will the world look at the way that we keep our promises, the way that we keep our vows, that when we open our mouths, oh, we don't, I had my fingers crossed. You know, no. If we make a public vow, we keep that. The Lord will grant us the courage and the strength to keep that. Will they see joy in our marriages? Will they see that we overcome individual pettiness? Or will they see us that we give in to the inclinations of the selfishness of the world around us? Will they see our faithfulness to our spouses as a testimony to the vows that we have made? I mean, how many of you were, were married here in this church? You don't have to put your hands up. I know who you are, the ones that I did. Okay, how many of you, you know, stood up before people? And I always like to say, you know, the reason we invite people to our weddings is witnesses to the promises that we make to one another. Okay, not just to buy us gifts that we promise to open or promise to pull out when they come over to visit. All oh, the steak knives we bought you, that's great, you know. Not for that. So that they can come to us in the times where we look like we're having trouble and put their arms around us and say, hey, you know, I remember I was at your wedding. I saw the vows. I heard the vows. I, I, I saw you demonstrate these things and to put their arms around us and care for us and help us get on track and help us fulfill those vows. Sometimes it's not just our arms around them. Sometimes we have to get up in their faces and say, you made these promises. You committed to this. Forget your selfishness, get it right, and do it, because this is pleasing to God. So there are vows we make in our lives. Will our vows give praise and testimony to the things of Christ, or will we be just like the world around us? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we have to be careful that we, we engage our minds and our faith before we open our mouths. But when we give thought to those things and make a vow, make a promise, there's a need to fulfill it before we, because we have made it unto you and we have made it before others. Lord, help us encourage one another in the faith. Help us be confident to come alongside other believers and encourage them to keep the vows that they have made, to even strengthen those vows. Lord, that we might be those who, who speak words of encouragement and kindness to one another and even words of challenge, and not just to talk but also to demonstrate it in our own lives. And when we come alongside others to encourage them to do what we can to show them and to give insight into how we keep our promises, both unto you, to our spouses, to the other, the, the other promises that we make, Lord. Let our words be yes or no. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.